Welcome to International Law Talk of Walters Kluwer International Group. During a series of podcasts, we'll bring you insightful analysis, commentary, and discussion from thought leaders and experts on current topics in the field of international arbitration, IP law, international tax law, competition law, and other international legal fields. Welcome to this special podcast episode of International Law Talk. My name is Gwen de Vries and I am the Director of Content and Market Development at Wolters Kluwer International Group. I have the pleasure to introduce our guests, Patricia Shonessi and John Fellis. I know Patricia for many years as professor at Stockholm University and founder and former director of the Master of International Commercial Arbitration Law, but of course also as one of our excellent authors. She will be interviewing John Fellis. John is originally a UK-based solicitor. He went to Harvard Law School and then was a partner at a global leading law firm for many years. As an adjunct professor at NYU and an honorary professor at Dartmouth in the US, he has a lot of experience teaching law students in the US, as well as practicing lawyers through the PMI organization in New York. He's also a prolific author of articles and other materials in international arbitration. He recently became an independent full-time arbitrator, sitting in major arbitrations all over the world. In this episode, they will discuss the future of arbitration, evolution or revolution. Over to you, Patricia. The main thing that we're going to be doing today is a bit different, perhaps on this podcast, and that is you're going to be sharing um, a pretty large part of a keynote address that you presented in Stockholm at the end of August in connection with the 20th anniversary of the LLM program in International Commercial Arbitration Law in Stockholm. And your keynote was so very much appreciated that we thought we should share it with the world. So um, that's what we're going to do today. Terrific. Well, it, it's a pleasure to be uh, invited uh, to talk to you and, and the listeners today. The topic of the conference you mentioned uh, was, quote, evolution or revolution. Have we mastered arbitration or do we need a blueprint for the future? And uh, the, 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 the talk was part of a two-day conference that had various panels addressing the challenges that we are facing in international arbitration right now and how we might respond. And I'm conscious that taking my talk outside the context of that conference may be a little like taking your pet goldfish out of its bowl for a spin in the car. My talk, uh, which I've shortened to fit the f- format of this podcast, hopefully made sense within the context of the conference, but I have no idea how it will play outside of that context. But with that, let me, let me begin. Um, the thesis that international arbitration needs to change in a revolutionary way is animated by the view that it is currently facing major challenges and that the only response is some thoroughgoing sweeping change. And we do see dramatic changes. We have technological changes, what with the growth of AI that threatened to impact virtually every profession and job, from lawyers to doctors to writers. We only recently emerged from a once-in-a-century pandemic and regrettably uh, find ourselves seeing war in many parts of the world. We have cryptocurrency changing how money is kept and transferred, and we are living through climate change, something we all feel the effects of. And lastly, and and on a good note, we are also 
living in a world where more and more people are committed to promoting diversity. Well, after having you remind us of all of the adversity that we are indeed facing globally, I'm glad you ended on a positive last point. And I, I hope that a more diverse community is really going to help us to tackle all of these challenges we, you've just noted. Well, and, and I hope so too. Um, but, you know, with, with all of these changes we are seeing, uh, the thesis runs that we need to respond and we need to respond dramatically. International arbitration needs a far-reaching and revolutionary response. International arbitration, so this argument goes, needs a blueprint for the future. Well, I'm here to say, not so fast. Now, one of the benefits of having been around for a while, which is a nicer way of saying that I'm no longer young, is this constant feeling of deja vu, this constant sense that I've seen this movie before. And the notion that we are facing a major, major changes and we need to respond now in a dramatic way, well, I've heard that before, many times. And let me give one example that will take us back about 25 years. I was around then. <laughs> so was I. <laughs> In the late 1990s, everyone was concerned with what they call the year 2000 problem or Y2K bug. I bet you remember it this sort yes. of trish. Yes, it was uh, a global emergency. <laughs> exactly. And, and the reason for this concern was that many computer programs that were used for example, by airlines, power plants, the banking system, electrical grids, were programmed using only two digits. So 1992, for example, was represented as 92. And there was this fear in the late 1990s that when we went from 1999 into 2000, there would be havoc, that calamity would strike our entire world because computers could not understand that two zeros meant 2000 rather than 1900. The fear was that planes would fall from the sky, power plants would shut down, banks would not be able to do business. I'm sure and everyone who's listening is now laughing, but this really was the headlines and concerns of everyone in companies. Exactly. No, and, and virtually every law firm in New York, probably in other major cities, set up new practice groups starting in 1999 called the Year 2000 Practice Group, where they published client advisories, held seminars, and visited clients pitching the services they could offer in advance of the major wave of litigation that would start to be filed on January 1st, 2000. Well, those practice groups were basically shut down by the end of January 2000s because none of the fears ever materialized. Planes continued to fly, people's lights still worked, banks still operated. Having had that and other experiences, I'm often uneasy when people declare that impending changes require a revolutionary response. Having said that, as with Y2K... Wait, wait, wait. Uh, what about AI? I mean, you have to admit that AI is probably more challenging and difficult to predict than the Y2K scare. I, I think that's right. I, I think in, in a sense that, you know, AI is coming, it's already here. And it's only going to infiltrate our lives more. But I, I, I will say this. It's unclear at this point in time um, how precisely it will impact what we do. We can guess a little bit. We can try and surmise. But it's not entirely clear. And, and the real question for us is, how do we respond to these impending changes? 
uh, well, uh, given, coming our way. Well, given your unique perspectives based upon your more than three decades of experience, how should we respond? Well, you know, broadly, I think there are two approaches. Um, we, we can adopt some type of framework that tries to anticipate issues in advance and tries to address them in advance. Let's try to predict what's going to happen with AI and let's try to address it in advance. That's one way. Or the other way is we can let arbitrators and lawyers and institutions address them in real time as they arise and let us find the solution organically to the problem that actually arises, not to the problem that we think now may arise. An analogy for the pr first approach is something like a country's adoption of a constitution. When the US constitution was first ratified in 1789, it was viewed as a revolutionary document embodying the ideal of representative government. And while it contains broad principles, we the people in order to form a more perfect union, it also addresses the little details. For example, the US Constitution provides that the president has to be at least 35 years old, it provides that the Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state. That's why you have 100 senators, 50 states to each. The alternative to this type of approach, this approach of trying to lay down a blueprint in advance, is not to try to anticipate and address every problem in advance, but to respond in real time as events arise. The second approach is more in keeping with the ethos of international arbitration, and it is the approach that I believe we should follow. Well, do we have to identify the ethos of, of international arbitration? Well, yeah, I think we know we all know what it is. I mean, a, a central feature of international arbitration is, is its flexibility and its adaptability. This is apparent from the fact that the hard law of international arbitration, the treaties, the national laws, do little to regulate the inner workings of the process. Take the New York Convention. For such a pivotal document, it says virtually nothing about the inner workings of the arbitral process. It doesn't set a minimum age for arbitrators. It doesn't tell us how many arbitrators should decide a case. Its main elements relate to the law governing the enforcement of arbitration agreements and of arbitration awards in the courts. To the extent it does regulate the inner workings of the arbitral process, it does so indirectly through standards of non-enforcement stated at a high level of abstraction that allow for huge discretion in the conduct of an arbitration proceeding. Well, could you give us an example of such an indirect standard in the New York Convention? Yes. I mean, take you know one ground for non-enforcement, one defense to enforcement in Article 5 of the Convention is this. The, the party against whom the award is invoked was not given proper notice of the appointment of the arbitrator or of the arbitration proceedings or was otherwise unable to present its case. What this tells you is that a party needs to have an opportunity to present its case. It doesn't dictate how. The New York Convention is therefore silent on what standards, for example, should apply to the exchange of documents, or whether there should even be an exchange of documents. Silent on whether there should be sequential, simultaneous exchange of written submissions, on whether there should be oral openings or closing statements, or whether cross-examination can go beyond the scope of a written witness statement, and so on. The New York Convention simply does not try to regulate 
the detailed procedures of an arbitration proceedings. And what is true of the New York Convention is also generally true of national law. National law rarely gets into the weeds of how an arbitration is to be conducted. Rather, the central feature of international arbitration is that the procedures for an individual case are left to the parties and the arbitrators to decide together. Yes, but uh, most arbitrations occur under applicable arbitration rules. And don't they provide a more detailed framework for how the arbitration should proceed? They, they provide a framework, but it's a framework that gives arbitrators and parties a great deal of flexibility to decide on the procedures appropriate to the particular case, but at the same time require adherence to certain core values, such as equal treatment, due process, impartiality, efficiency. And, and in short, I, the hallmark of international arbitration is flexibility, and that flexibility means two things. We often talk ad nauseum about one of these things. It means arbitrators can adopt procedures tailored for a particular case, rather like a custom-made suit instead of a one-size-fits-all. But it also means something else, something just as important that we focus upon less. The flexibility means we in the international arbitration community can respond in real time to whatever the world decides to throw at us. Because of the broad discretion granted to arbitrators and parties to decide on the procedures for a particular case, one hallmark of international arbitration is it is adaptable. And the same adaptability is demonstrated by arbitral institutions who revise their rules regularly in response to events in real time. Yes, but uh, when arbitral institutions are responding to such events, which by their nature are going to be based on past experience, do they make such rule changes with significant changes to have big effects? Or are they really just reflecting emerging best practices? Well, I think, I, I think it's a bit of both. You know, rules, arbitral rules change in, in incrementally. Um, and they tend to respond to events. I mean, what, you know, one of the one of the changes I I, I lived through, um, although it's now considered very rigor, is emergency arbitrators. Um, you know, perhaps I, I may have the timing wrong, but going back about ten years, the rules didn't have provisions for emergency arbitrators. That was a response to people realizing. We need to be able to get relief quickly sometimes without having to go to national courts. And let's let's create a system of emergency arbitrators. Now all the major rules have them. We saw rules being revised in the wake of the pandemic to allow for virtual hearings to respond to that change. And I think rules can change incrementally to, to adapt to events as things occur that we need to respond to. And I suspect at some point in time, um, once we see more clearly uh, how AI will impact what we do, we will see perhaps rules change to respond to that. Um, you know, requiring perhaps, we know one thought, requiring disclosure, where uh, counsel in a case relies on AI to, to um, prepare a memorial. Um, which, which brings me back to the central question. Yes, big changes may be coming, but do we address them by revolution or evolution? 
in the stark choice offered by those two extremes, I choose evolution. Now, when we think about evolution in the physical world, one of its most important elements is adaptation, the ability of organisms to adapt to the world around them in order to survive and prosper. We see this in the plants that have adapted to life in dry, hot deserts by evolving into succulents, thick plants that are able to store water in their thick, short, thick stems and leaves. And we see it in animals. Gray whales spend the summer in the cold Arctic Ocean where there is plenty of food, but in the winter, they migrate to the warm waters off the coast of Mexico. Plants and animals adapt to survive. And international arbitration has the same ability to adapt. We can change our practices quickly in response to events, but sometimes these changes are viewed as such huge improvements to the process as a whole that they become more fixed elements in the process, rather like the leaves of succulents. Yes, but doesn't evolutionary responses imply very slow growth and not changing too much too soon? Do we have time for such change? I think we do have time. I mean, I haven't seen anything to suggest that somehow we're on the verge, we're on the edge of a cliff, and that unless we do something dramatic, we're going to fall down. I think we have time to adjust to and see what the world is, uh, see what the changes will be before respond, responding um, uh, uh, prematurely. Now, but I understand, you know, Patricia, somebody may well say to me, you just don't get it. We are facing such major changes. We can't rely on the same tired way as you're advocating. We need to do something dramatic and revolutionary. Otherwise, planes will fall from the sky. Power plants will fail. Banks won't be able to do business. To that person, let me offer this response. If there's any doubt about whether the international arbitration community can handle whatever changes may come our way, Let's look at how the community responded to that once-in-a-century event, the pandemic. During the pandemic, which raised numerous challenges for everyone, both professionally and personally, we didn't see major changes in national le arbitration legislation to respond to what international arbitration was facing. We didn't have blueprints from the, for the future declaimed from on high. Rather, we saw institutions, arbitrators, lawyers, clients responding in real time to ensure that their cases went forward, despite the fact that we were all living under lockdown. One of the earliest things I remember about serving as an arbitrator during the pandemic is something that is now second nature for us, protocols for virtual hearings. Most of us had never done an entire case virtually before the pandemic. So we had to create these protocols from scratch, addressing such issues as how to ensure a witness wasn't being coached when he or she was giving testimony remotely, addressing what to do in the event of a technological glitch. We adapted in response to the pandemic instantly at the individual level. Individual arbitrators began to prepare their own protocols for virtual hearings, which gradually got circulated and improved in the light of experience, demonstrating the true evolutionary process of adaptation. And eventually, if I can push this metaphor 
too far, perhaps through a process of natural selection, best practices emerge, which we still use today when we have virtual hearings. So whatever challenges we face, I believe we have the flexibility and the ingenuity to address them in real time. We might not have been prepared for the pandemic and managed to quickly respond to it, but isn't there some advantage in trying to anticipate the changes coming so that we're ready and able to adapt smoothly, to have a blueprint ready to take out of the drawer? Well, you know, I think we should be ready to some degree. I think we should focus carefully on what is happening and how, you know, changes in technology or the use of cryptocurrency or and so on are affecting what we do, are affecting the practice of arbitration. We should always be uh, focusing on that. I think where, where I differ is whether we should now start drawing up blueprints for the future, tr- start drawing up some, you know, rigid plan of action. Because one of one of the dangers of blueprints for the future is that at best, at best, they become knee-jerk default positions. A set of practices that we unthinkingly and automatically adopt without regard to whether they are appropriate in the individual case. But at worst, blueprints for the future freeze in place a set of practices that might have made sense once, but don't anymore. Let, let's go back to the U.S. Constitution, as I think it illustrates the latter point. People all over the world venerate the U.S. Constitution as embodying democratic ideals. But consider this. As I said, the number of senators is fixed in the U.S. Constitution. There shall be two senators from each state. That might have made sense in 1789. But what does it mean now? Compare a state like North Dakota, which has fewer than 800,000 people. It has two senators. California, by contrast, has a population of 38 million people. It also has two senators. When it comes to one California, one senator represents the voice of 19 million citizens. When it comes to North Dakota, one senator represents the voice of 400,000 US citizens. In some sense, It is precisely the opposite of a democratic process. The citizens of some states have a disproportionate voice in the legislature. Yet, the US Constitution is very hard to change. And I suspect that one of the difficulties we see in US politics these days, where, for example, in the face of routine, heartbreaking mass shootings, most people agree that there should be some type of gun control legislation. No such legislation is ever passed. But um, I can appreciate the point you're making, and, and indeed that is somewhat disturbing. But if we go back to arbitration, is it really as hard to change in meaningful ways as a country's constitution and political system? Wouldn't it help, particularly in the context of international arbitration, to have some sort of plan that takes account of the global practice rather than a haphazard, slow development without leadership, where sometimes the biggest voices are the ones that get heard? Well, you know, I I think perhaps what we're talking about here is, you know, is a question of degree. You know, to what degree do you start to embody changes? You know, a constitution is hard to change. Uh, The New York Convention is hard to change. And you know, the New York Convention, you know, 
is a great document, but it, you know, take Article Two Two, right? The term agreement in writing shall include an arbitral clause in a contract or an arbitration agreement signed by the parties or contained in an exchange of letters or telegrams. Where was the last time you got a telegraph? Exactly. <laughs> you know, and that is there. And the writing requirement, the the, the notion that, you know, uh, only agreements in writings shall be enforced has actually been softened uh, in, national, uh, in national legislation and and. and by national courts um, to, to, in a sense, hold that the, the New York Convention sort of sets forth a, a minimum requirement. Uh, courts, national courts must enforce agreements in writing, um, but uh, they can enforce agreements that are not in writing. I mean, that has been the approach of, uh, of Ancetral and the approach of, of national courts in, in the U.S. Uh, as recently as the Otto Kumpo case by the U.S. Supreme Court. So, yeah, there are you know there are ways to do things. I think taking a very rigid approach um, uh, uh, can be a mistake. And at this time, I I just I I you know I, I, talks on inter, on artificial intelligence have in a sense become you know the the flavor du jour. It's uh, you know <laughs> every other conference addresses artificial intelligence, but. I must confess, you know, people are speculating, are sitting down and speculating as to what may happen. And I haven't heard anything which leads me, at least, to believe, yes, we need to address this now in this way. I suspect we will come to that. I suspect we will come to that point. And it may well be, you know, there will be IBA guidelines on the use of AI. It may well be that um, rules will adjust to uh, to take that into account. What I think I'm I'm against is having something that is too rigid now, when we don't know exactly what's going to happen. Because things do get adopted in a knee jerk way. I mean, we see this in the way uh, arbitrators recite as a mantra in the first procedural order in a case. I mean, and I'm guilty of this myself. You know, the tribunal. Shall be guided by, but not bound by, the IBA rules on the taking of evidence. It's become a mantra that we all recite, um, and and sometimes unthinkingly, without regard as to whether that makes sense in the individual case. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm really focused on the stark contrast between some revolutionary blueprint and an evolutionary approach. I think there is middle ground that I think um, I, I I would favour seen on the closer to the evolutionary side of the spectrum. Because I'm confident that we can handle whatever the world throws at us. I believe we have the flexibility and the overriding values uh, of equal treatment, due process, impartiality, and fairness that will guide us to the right solution. It was that flexibility and those principles that guided us during the pandemic to allow arbitration to go forward by adopting new approaches that are now old hat. And I think that same flexibility and those same principles would, will guide us now. Now, by saying all this, I don't want to leave you with the impression that I believe everything is 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 perfect. We cannot be complacent. I, I see this complacency regularly. Uh, the flexibility of arbitration can, can get transformed into a strange rigidity. Well, you gave us the example just now of PO number one, which starts getting used and starts growing to 20, 30, 40, 50 pages. But 
Could you give us another example? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you one other example. Is is the automatic adoption of, of Redfern schedules and, and Stern schedules. Again, they, they are automatically adopted without regard as to whether uh, they are appropriate. I think, you know, people don't think about it. Um, you know, I, as much as I love Alan Redfern, um, I, I have become uh, less and less enamored of the Redfern schedule uh, for reasons I won't go into now, other given the time limitations we have. Um, but, and it is also the case that instead of, you know, thinking about procedures tailored for the case, we often get a sort of model PO number one that uh, is just brought out for every case. Um, arbitration is is not perfect. Uh, it can always get better. Um, uh, and, and like many things, uh, including our own lives, it, uh, international arbitration is a work in progress. Um, it can always be improved, but I think we have nothing to fear. Um, the, the title of this talk, which was borrowed from the title of the conference at which this talk was delivered, Evolution or Revolution, Have We Mastered Arbitration or Do We Need a Blueprint for the Future, reminds me of one of my favorite Beatles songs, uh, Revolution. It begins with the words, you say you want a revolution, well, you know, we all want to change the world. You tell me that it's evolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. And it ends with a repeat, repeated refrain. Don't you know, it's going to be all right. And if there's any takeaway from the remarks I was kindly invited to deliver today, that's it. It's going to be all right. Thank you. Well, Thank you, John, and I'm glad that you left us on a positive note and with the, um, I think, pretty convincing argument that if we rely upon our ability to adapt and we stay true to our core values, that it is going to be all right. So I think it's a, a, a happy note to end on. Thank you to all of the listeners who joined us, and thank you very much to Walters Kluver for allowing John and I to be your guests on International Law Talk today. Stay informed. Subscribe to this podcast. Visit kluwerlaw.com or follow us on social media.